Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week, we're talking about how human creativity remakes the world with composer Anthony Brand and neuroscientist David Eagleman in their new book, The Runaway Species. David Eagleman is a neuroscientist at Stanford University. His scientific research is published in journals from Science to Nature, and he's also the author of the internationally best-selling books Sum and Incognito, both of which long-term listeners of Little Atoms will remember him talking about on the show. He's also the author of The Brain, and also the writer and presenter of the companion BBC television series The Brain. Anthony Brand is an internationally acclaimed composer and a professor of composition and theory at Rice University's Shepherd School of Music. His musical output includes two chamber operas and works for orchestra, chamber ensembles, dance, theatre, film and television. He's also artistic director of the award-winning new music ensemble Musica, and both David and Anthony are the authors of The Runaway Species, How Human Creativity Remakes the World, which we're going to talk about today. Welcome 
David, welcome back. Anthony, welcome to Little Atom. Thank you so much. Great, thanks. Um, Anthony, first of all, you tell me how the two of you met and started to collaborate. Well, we met when the group that I direct music of, we were having a benefit, and I had the crazy idea that it would be fun to have a scientist talk, and I still don't remember why I thought that. But I called David's teacher, Reed Montague, because he had written a book whose title that I love why you bought this book, The Science of Human Decision-Making. And I asked him, would he be interested in doing a talk? And he said, oh, I'm really sorry. I'm on a book tour. I, I won't be able to, but I have this brilliant student who is also a great speaker, Try David Eagleman. And David came and gave us fantastic talk about synesthesia. In fact, we had a director of the Contemporary Arts Museum, Houston, was in the audience for the talk. She didn't realize she was synesthetic until the talk. And she came up to David afterwards and said, wait, you mean... January is in purple for everybody. And David was like, go to my website, take the test. And we've been friends ever since. And, you know, incredibly excited about that. So, David, what was the idea behind the Runaway Species? So, Tony and I started talking a while ago about creativity. And we realized that we'd both been thinking about it a lot in ways that converged very beautifully. And so, essentially, the question at the heart of it is, why are we the only species that's doing anything amazing and, and interesting. In other words, you know, why don't squirrels build the internet? Why don't dogs go to the moon and cows do theater and so on? And and uh, and the answer has to do with the structure of the human brain and what's happened to it over evolutionary time. Essentially, there's been this massive expansion of the cortex, which is the pink wrinkly part on the outside. And that has given us the ability to blend ideas in new ways and to think about possible futures, to think about what ifs. And so as a combination of those issues, we're this incredibly creative species that has created this whole civilization around us. So Tony and I started talking about that a while ago, and I guess about four years ago now, he said, my God, we've got to write a book on this on this issue and what creativity is all about and how it's essentially part of the basic cognitive software that's running under the hood in every brain. It's not something that's the domain of, of a few people. And um, what you can do to optimize it as well is um, you know, part of what we addressed here. Tony, so how do you collaborate on a book? You're both from different fields. David's a scientist, you're an artist. And I should say as well, this is basically what Little Atoms is about, the sort of crossover between the mm. arts and science. Oh, so this book is like is perfect for us. But in terms of sitting down and coming from those two disciplines, how do you work together? So we basically took the attitude, uh, we, we often called it trial balloons, that basically anything belonged on the table, we would put as many options as we could, and then we would chew over them together. And we had one golden rule that we followed religiously the whole time that made it so much fun to work together. And that was, if it wasn't a unanimous vote for something, it just went, and that was it, no argument. And so, you know, if I brought something and David went, eh, that was okay, it was gone, we'll try something better. And through that process, every word was written by the two of us, um, we would sit at David's kitchen table every weekend while he was living in Houston and come with some raw material and refashion it and hone it down. And it was incredible fun and such a joyous experience, I would say, to see ideas refined and brought together and work to the point where, especially, as I've often said, David was such scientific mind and also such a poetic spirit, and that it couldn't just sound good, it had to be accurate. And when we felt like we had arrived at that point, that it both read well, but it had real merit, then we you know, we felt satisfied that it belonged in the book. I guess I should ask for your take on it as well, David, yeah. Great. I mean, one of the, one of the ideas that Tony had at the beginning is that 
What happens in the arts is overt, where, you know, you take source material and you bend it or break it or blend it to make something new in the arts. And it's very obvious to see that's what that sculptor did, that's what that painter did, and so on. And that what happens in the sciences is exactly the same process underneath the hood of bending, breaking, and blending, but it's, of course, covert. So when you pick up your cell phone... There's so much creativity that went into that, but you can't tell. It's just a rectangle in your pocket. And so this is one of the ideas that we pursued throughout the book, and it gave us a lovely opportunity also for Tony to bring to the table so many ideas from the arts that I didn't know, and I brought to the table some ideas from the sciences that maybe Tony didn't know. Right. And so, so in that way, we were able to figure out where the parallels were. In other words, here's something where you can see this in the arts, and then the way this the book is structured is it's always followed by something in the sciences where someone wins a Nobel Prize or something, and you can see that it's exactly the same cognitive operations that underlie both of them. So that's part of what emerged by, uh, by having an artist and a scientist write this together. Okay, I want to look at an, an example that you start the book with. In fact, a couple of examples, and I'll come to you in a moment again, mm-hmm. Tony. But sure. David starts off with um, Apollo 13 and what happened. And basically, at the end of the interview, I want to sort of return and look back at some of the things that we've talked about and how that applies to this. But remind us what happened to Apollo 13. So Apollo 13 was attempting a moonshot and and things went wrong with the ship and there was the famous line Houston we have a problem and you know they radioed back to uh to Mission Control Center and everything was starting to fall apart with the ship and so the guys on the ground did this unbelievable job of figuring out how they could save these three men abandoned in space and they did this this incredible work of figuring out, you know, because all of this was off script. No one had expected the particular problems they had. So they figured out, well, if you do this and you tear off the cover of the binder and you use that to make a filter, and you, and they ended up saving these three men. And then the other story we tell is about Picasso, who in a completely different circumstance at a different time, by himself, was working on his next painting and, and really pushing the bounds of something new. And um, he made a painting that uh, essentially everybody hated. And, and he had to figure out what to do about this. And, and on the surface, these seem like two completely different stories. And that's why we start the book with these, because we use this to illustrate that exactly the same kind of cognitive software was running in the heads of the guys in, in Houston at the Mission Control Center and in Picasso's head. The same issues about bending and breaking and blending, taking what source material they had and mushing it together to come up with new things. It's it's actually the same process in both cases, and that's why we start the book that way. Yeah, so, Tony, the Mademoiselle d'Avignon, the um, world-changing right. painting by Picasso, described by a critic in the book as the most original painting for 700 years. Right. Of course, Picasso was... <laughs> to take an example from David Field, basically standing on the shoulders of giants. He was obviously taking steps that had taken place by previous artists to get him to that point, wasn't it? He? he had a reputation, actually. He, he When he was young and he was very poor, he was living in kind of a, a, a derelict place where a lot of artists were working. 
and he he had a reputation for running around the building seeing what everybody else was experimenting with and then making it his own and you know there's this famous line of picasso that you know uh, ordinary artists imitate great artists steal and hidden in that remark is exactly the point that we're making only you put steal on the word and it makes it sound like you're doing something illegal mm-hmm. Our argument is basically that's what all creativity is. It's always remodeling what you know and turning it into something new. And so in that sense, Picasso is not extraordinary in his cognitive operations. It's just what he does with them that's so unbelievable. And David, you talk about some examples from technology as well, the the iPhone. And, and I thought found more interestingly as well the, the, um, the iPod in that somebody had basically invented or sketched out an iPod before. Yeah, it was actually a British inventor, Kane Kramer, uh, who came up with this idea. What did he call it, Tony? The, the IXI. IXI, right. And, and it was this idea that, you know, what if you have this little rectangular thing and you can store music on it digitally and so on. He, he had little controls on it and so on. But it was just, it was slightly before its time. And so it turned out that the, the memory capacity of it was only able to hold a single song. And so it, clearly it never sort of took off. But what's interesting is if you put that side by side with the iPod, which was revolutionary when it came out, it's really the same thing. Yeah. And it, this is just one illustration of a hundred we have in the book about how every idea actually has a genealogy, even though so many ideas seem like, my God, this must have been a bolt out of the blue for, for Steve Jobs. In fact, uh, there's a whole lineage to it and patents in this case and so on. Uh, the same thing happened with the iPhone, which uh, when Steve Jobs got up and announced it in 2006, it stunned the world. And people said, my God, this is, there's just never been anything like this. One of the reporters described it as a, a Jesus phone. But in fact, it was not from a virgin birth. IBM in 1993 had introduced a phone called the Simon, which was a touchscreen cell phone. And, of course, it was a big, bulky thing like a brick, and it had a this funny uh, touchscreen on it that was small. But the ideas had all been there. Now, this is not to take away anything from the novelty and originality that Steve Jobs introduced into the mix. It's simply that he was using source materials from what was around him in the same way that Picasso did, in the same way that the NASA engineers did. It was, you know, using what was there and reconfiguring it. I'm author I. Miller. You're listening to Resonance FM, and this is Little Adams, a radio show about ideas and culture. There's a graph reproduced in the book that shows sort of major innovations. Mm-hmm. That are, you know, somebody invents, we invent agriculture, mm-hmm. somebody invents pottery, somebody invents writing, <laughs> and these things are all happening like thousands of years <laughs> apart. And then suddenly it ramps up, and in the 20th century, you know, we go to the moon and we invent the iPod and we invent the World Wide Web. Tony, why is innovation speeding up? Because we are all feeding each other more and more source material. And just the fact that we can communicate so rapidly, I mean, it used to be time and distance were correlated, and the farther apart you were, the longer it took to get a message delivered. And now that's not true. We can email China right now and get the message there faster than delivering it around the block. And the interconnection of our world and the fact that there are more brains than ever before all running this same software, all seeking to surprise each other and engage each other, literally is pouring accelerant on the fuel of human imagination. Exactly. And I'll just add to that that you know, 200 years ago, there were some, uh, there were some 100 million people on the planet. And then by 1900, it was like 1.5 billion people. Mm. And now we've got you know, 7 billion people. And so what this means is, uh, exactly as Tony just said, all these brains chewing on each other's 
creative output and coming up with, with new stuff. Tony, you also talk in the book about there's a the sort of myth of the solitary artist, mm. the genius working in a garret somewhere. And David, this obviously occurs in science as well, the idea of the genius, the sort of lone genius who comes up with it. We can all think of those people, be it, you know, Darwin or Einstein or Isaac Newton. But in reality, in both fields, this is much more of an endeavor of a community, isn't it? In many different ways. One, because everyone is a function of their time and place. Something we talk about in the book, you know, here's Ludwig van Beethoven, incredible experimental composer, pushing Western classical music to places no one had ever imagined it going. You know, his name is on the center of so many concert halls around the world. But it never occurred to Beethoven that there should be music where people play deliberately out of tune, or there isn't a steady rhythm, or all of a sudden you use some of the noises that you produce by playing, like blowing into a flute, and use those as expressive features. And the fact is, that was part of music halfway around the world. Beethoven, as brilliant and as far-seeing as he was, was far-seeing within a certain culture. And so he depended on having orchestras and string quartets and other composers working around him. That's number one. Number two is in how work is received. We tell the story of Alfred Wegener, who came up with an, an astonishing idea that absolutely everyone around him thought was ridiculous. It was well-known and well-established that the earth never moved, and it was a solid piece of stone. And he had this idea that actually the continents are shifting. And, and essentially he did what we would call a mental blend where he figured out that the continents actually fit together perfectly like a jigsaw puzzle and that they gradually have drifted apart. And he died in the Arctic trying to come up with any kind of evidence that he could. And if it wasn't for just a few people who kind of kept this little spark of his idea alive... Um, it essentially would have been kind of forgotten and totally buried. And then 20 years after his death, finally the technology caught up with his idea and they could prove that, in a sense, he was the Darwin of the Earth and recognized that the, that the Earth was evolving as well as the species who live on it. David, in the book you talk about obviously many ways in which human beings differ from our animal brethren in terms of um, creativity one of which is our ability to imagine possible futures. So I already mentioned this part about how the human brain is anatomically slightly different. I mean, the part that's always been so interesting to me is that when we look at animal brains, it's essentially the same as ours. And in fact, in neuroscience, half the time is spent studying animal brains because they're so similar. And so the question is, why is it that we're the only ones that have created civilizations and built great cities and um, you know, one of the things we mentioned in the book is that when you're flying over a forest and you look down over it, it looks exactly the way it did a million years ago. But when you're flying over London and you look out the window, it's like a motherboard that's come up. And it's all because of one single species on the planet. So there's been this expansion of the cortex, which I, which I mentioned. Part of, that is, uh, part of that expansion gave us what's called the prefrontal cortex, which is the part behind the forehead. And that allows us to unhook from our moment in space and time and think about what could be could you know it allows us to simulate as the uh, as the scientist Karl Popper put it it allows our hypotheses to die in our stead and so what this means is we can take in all the input from the world and simulate well what if I put these things together what if I did this what if I did that what if I crashed these what if I broke this in half and so on and most of the ideas we come up with are garbage. And occasionally there's one that's kind of good. It might work. And that's all it takes is just a few uh, good ideas in there to start this, uh, this massive acceleration of uh, what our species is in the middle of now. 
Hi, I'm Jonathan Tanner, presenter of a fortnightly new podcast called Government vs. the Robots, where we look at how technology will affect politics in years to come. We're going to be talking to experts, who we're not fed up of yet, about how drones, driverless cars, Fitbits and changes to food might affect the way we vote in years to come. Politics and politicians have a significant role here. And then there's all the future stuff. There's all the things that we don't know about yet. You can subscribe on iTunes, Acast or wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Anthony Brand and David Eagleman about their new book, The Runaway Species, How Human Creativity Remakes the World. So, Anthony, I want to move on to these the idea of the three Bs that mm-hmm. you talk about in the book. David mentioned a few times in, in the first part that are three aspects of creativity that mm-hmm. we can see applied both in the arts and the sciences, and we'll talk as we go along of some examples in, in slightly more detail. But the first one of these is bending. What do you mean by that? Bending is essentially the concept of a theme and variations, that you take some prototype and archetype and you twist it out of shape in some way. You de- you develop it in new directions. That could be by changing the size of it, uh, changing the shape of it, changing the texture. Uh, essentially, the means of doing it are constantly themselves being varied. And if you vary the sources and you vary the means of doing it, essentially you have this limitless possibility of constantly developing your source material. So we talk in the book, uh, for instance, about the very first artificial hearts were essentially trying to reproduce Mother Nature mechanically and make a pump that worked like a a natural heart does. And then two doctors actually in Houston came up with this idea, well, wait a second, why do we have to have it work like a pump? Why don't we have it be continuous flow? And uh, former Vice President Dick Cheney has a heart inside of him that's pulseless. He has no pulse, works perfectly like a heart, but it doesn't use exactly nature's model. And, you know, it's a beautiful example of working from some source material, but doing some manipulation to it that changes it into something brand new. Okay, David, Tony's picked an example from science. Let's talk about a, a couple from from art. So the chapter starts off with um, Monet's variations on his portraits of his paintings of Rouen Cathedral. Yeah, so he made lots of different paintings of the exact same thing, but different lighting conditions and using different colors and exploring that. And so what he was doing is uh, a theme that we'll return to later here, but he was proliferating options. He was taking what was in front of him, what was presented to him, and just trying out different versions of it, bending it in various ways. And, and by doing so, he was able to you know, produce a lot and presumably learn a lot uh, about what was there in front of him. And this is, you know, stereotypic of what we do as a species is take the same source material and, and turn it into different things. We know a lot of great jazz artists by their recordings, but those recordings, in a sense, don't do full justice to mm-hmm. what they're doing because it's one night yeah. at the Blue Note Club and you hear John Coltrane doing one version of, you know, one of his famous songs or Miles yeah. Davis. And the next night that will be different. But if you went night after night after night after night and heard every single time Round Midnight played a different way, that's, you know, what we're arguing in the book is that's just a basic procedure of human brains. And you feel it on overt display when you're sitting in that jazz club night after night. The other one I wanted to mention was uh, Frank Gehry and his style of architecture. <laughs> yeah. I mean, this is a great example of bending because... Literally. It literally, because... <laughs> yeah, you, you know, we grow up, we look at buildings that are all straight in every way. They're carpentered, as it's called. And, um, you know, and so the idea is, well, what if... I took a building and I bent it and I made it, you know, curvy or not straight in some way. I took the facade and made it all 
uh, wobbly like a wave or something. And that's what, you know, that's what has uh, made Gary's building so terrific and, you know, made his career what it is. Uh, it's this simple act of taking what's out there and bending it a bit. And there's a few examples in this chapter of, of artists that are doing things on a really incredibly small scale. So there's a, a, a sculpture where she, she creates works of art in, like, toilet tubes. Yes. And even more crazy, there's a guy, Vic Muniz, right. who uh, makes these nanoscale sculptures that are basically on a grain of sand. Right, right. So he has one in the book called Sand Castle, which is a wonderful pun because it's actually a picture of a castle on a grain of sand. And you can only look at it through a microscope. Um, it's done with lasers. So we've talked about bending. So, David, the next B is breaking. Breaking obviously sounds more destructive than creative. What do we, <laughs> what do we mean by breaking in this context? Breaking is about taking a source in and busting it up into its component pieces and seeing what you can get out of that. So, you know, this is something when you look at uh, sculpture around you where you, you just see heads or just torsos or something like that. These are examples of of breaking something up. But it turns out that this is something that is very useful in science also. So just as one example, you know, a guy named Fred Sanger was a scientist who was working on how do you sequence DNA? And that turned out to be a very hard problem because it's a very long molecule. And so he just broke those up into small bits. And you sequence those small bits. He ended up winning two Nobel Prizes for his, his work with breaking there. Or just as another example uh, from, from the field of neuroscience, there's a new method called clarity, which allows you to essentially wash away all the fatty tissue of a brain so that you can you essentially turn it transparent so that you can see the connections uh, between areas of the brain and figure out the, sort of the structure underlying it. And so this is just getting rid of part of it so you can see the rest of it in a, in a clear way. So across the arts and the sciences, breaking things into their component parts ends up being a really important part of what we do. Tony, in the book you um, you reproduce one of my very favourite paintings, which is the the George Surratt, which my mm. wife will tell you I pointed at and went, oh look, they've got Sunday at the Park with George, in there. <laughs> uh, which is not the title. Pointillism is yes. a great example of what David's talking about. Exactly, and it, that, that's one of those places where, again, the art and the science can come right next to each other because the very same principle of taking us what we would normally feel was a solid image and breaking it up into tiny points uh, is the basis of faxing, is the basis of uh, LCD screens, is the basis of our entire digital universe. And, you know, there's a painter looking at the world, breaking it into small bits. There is a software engineer essentially doing the, exactly the same thing, and the secrets underlying both. And we could bring back Picasso into this as well, because you talk about Guernica in this chapter. And he, again, he's doing a similar thing, but obviously not on such a tiny scale. Yeah. Exactly. And and I love the connection that we make between uh, Picasso and Brock breaking up the visual plane and how mobile phones came to be what they are. Because originally there was only one antenna per city and there was a limited number of a couple of dozen frequencies. And so only a few people could be on the phone at the same time. And most of the time you're getting a busy signal. And so obviously this wasn't going to go anywhere very fast uh, until this engineer at Bell Labs came up with this idea. Wait a second. What if I broke a continuous area of a city into smaller cells and gave each one of them their own tower? 
then we'd multiply the number of available frequencies. And as long as you could work out a handoff as you pass from one of the cells to another, this would all gonna work seamlessly. And that's why we have the word cell phone. So again, sort of covertly hidden in that word is the secret to how it works, but you see it very immediately in the arts. I'm Emily Mayhew. You're listening to Resonance FM, and this is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. I want to move on to blending, David, the, the third of the three Bs. And the way that Tony's just been describing how cell towers work, you talk in this section in a slightly different context about HDR photography, how that's made up of a number of images. Yeah. How does that work? So the whole, the whole idea with HDR photography, which almost certainly viewers have, have seen, these pictures that almost look more real than real, where it's a, a building or a river or something, and everything is sharp and, and beautifully contrasted with everything else, that is your camera taking several different exposures of the same scene rapidly and then blending these together in a perfect way so that uh, essentially you're maximizing the contrast at, at every place in the picture. And what this gives you is a very new way of doing photography, but it's a blend of things. And this is quite similar to something that many people don't know that uh, YouTube does, for example, which is they have different resolutions of the same video, high def down to low res. And because your internet service provider might have a limited bandwidth, what they do is they feed you the highest resolution that they can, but sometimes if your bandwidth is low, they they put in these low-resolution clips in the middle of the video, and you don't generally notice that this is all blended together, so you're seeing the video, even though it's made up of, of lots of different things. So there are, many, there are many ways in which blends happen. I'll just mention one from science, which is scientists, many people have wanted to make spider silk in bulk, but it turns out it's very difficult to get uh, spiders to do this, and if you get too many spiders together, they'll eat each other, and so <laughs> so. What they did, the scientists, is took the gene for making spider silk and they injected it into a, the, the cells of a goat. And so the goat in her milk makes spider silk, which is then extracted. And so this is an example of blending two things together in the same way that the Greeks made uh, you know, mythical chimeras by blending two animals together. It's now happening in real life. And it can walk on the ceiling as well as a bonus. <laughs> <laughs> Tony, there's also there's staying with the idea of genetic splicing in in this section. We've also seen now a number of artists commenting on the idea of you know the various sort of ethical questions about manipulation of the of the human genome in this sort of way by creating sort of genetic art, haven't we? Mm, yes, I mean we we don't in the book go too much into the, some of the ethical mm -hmm. kind of uh, consequences of human creativity because our basic feeling is an optimistic one, that overall, although humans have a dark side and we deal with many kinds of complexities and, and moral dilemmas, the world is actually constantly being made better by these working of our imagination. And that if any of your listeners were given the choice of living now or in 10,000 BC London, uh, they wouldn't choose to be back then with high child mortality and a very short lifespan and no Little Adams podcast. No. And, uh, uh, so, you know, we have a lot of work to do as a species to make the world much, much better than it is. But our feeling is that all of those improvements will come through the actions of our human creativity and that we have to educate all children to be able to fully nurture that. And 
yes, we are going to constantly come up. Our imagination, our ingenuity is going to lead us into all sorts of dilemmas and questions, and those need to be worked out. But we felt like what we really wanted the book to be about was just sort of the eye-opening fact that this is something we all have in our heads. And it's a wonderful, beautiful, incredible thing that does make us unique, maybe even in the whole universe for all we know. And let's make the most of it. Anthony, I just wanted to self-indulgently talk about another example from later in the book um, in terms of the the three Bs, which is um, Lemoninus, the uh, the Velasquez painting, which again is is one of my very favourite paintings. But Mm -hmm. again, regular listeners of Little Atoms will know that we did a a show earlier in the year where we, we talked about it at length. I wasn't so familiar with Picasso's many variations on that painting. Tell me about that. There's two things that are important to the book about that to us. One is this concept we've named breaking good, which is the idea that, you know, once you acknowledge that everything comes from the history around you and that that you're always drawing on what's around you, that actually you show your love for things by remodeling them. That's not a destructive act. That is actually how things get perpetuated. And the lifeblood of our culture is the DNA of all of this great imaginative work constantly being reimagined in the future. And so Picasso's Las Meninas, which he did 57 different versions of, is his way of honoring this great painting and having it live on in a contemporary form, in a sense. Uh, And then the other part is what David mentioned before, is just the fact that he did 57 of them. And so he's not looking for an endpoint. He's not saying there's the final version. He's showing you that he can constantly come up with new ways of doing it. And that's not the only painting that Picasso did that with. He did it for another one in our book, Le Déjeuner sur l'Aube of Manet, and then several others. And it just shows you how his imagination was constantly working. Take the past, remodel it, do again. And David, I want to do what I said at the beginning, is refer us back to the Apollo 13 incident. Now we've talked about the three Bs, although you did sort of refer to them while you were talking about it. However, let's uh, let's do it anyway. <laughs> so now we've talked about those concepts. What were the guys on the uh, on Apollo thirteen doing to implement those three ideas? Yeah, well, so the engineers on the ground had to think about. Okay, we've never dealt with this situation before. So how can we take the materials that they have in the spaceship, which are limited? And how can we bend and break and blend things that they have there in order to solve the problem? It's an interesting story because it's a completely closed system. They know exactly what they have. They have this inventory, what's on board the ship. And if they're going to come up with the answer to anything, it's got to come from some combination of the things on that list. And it's not going to work to have everything intact. They're tearing things apart. They're piecing it together. They're twisting the shapes of things all to get air filters fitting in the right place and power flowing. And in a sense, we say that's what every brain is doing with what it knows. And Picasso's system, his reservoir of knowledge is different from the NASA engineers, but he's doing exactly the same cognitive work on that material to create La Demoiselle d'Avignon. And this is, by the way, why when you look across cultures, you find such different kinds of theater or painting or the way they do gardens or whatever it is they're doing, because we're all functions of our input. So if you grow up in a particular kind of world, you can springboard off that to the next thing. But there's no there's no reason that these should all be so different, except that everything has its genealogy and, and it follows in that line. It's just like looking at animals in evolutionary history, the way that depending on their local 
place, they go off and, you know, the rabbits look different in different places or the dogs look different or the horses look different. Okay, just one more question then. I know obviously the idea of the book is to keep things positive, but um, <laughs> we were talking about breaking earlier and I sort of suggested that that sounded quite destructive and people will be familiar with the modern sort of business process of disruption. This is something you do talk about in the book and the very concept of disruption is, you know, sort of going in and changing an industry in a in a sort of huge way very, very quickly. And I wondered if you'd both comment on, you know, whether or not sometimes that sort of like creative instinct can happen faster than we can deal with, too fast in some respects. So uh, one underlying theme of the whole book is that creativity often is angled as if it's all about novelty when actually that's not really accurate. It's always a tension between going as far as you can without leaving the familiar too far behind. Mm -hmm. And where that tension gets worked out, there's no single answer for that. It's a constant experiment and there's a lot of risk. But we would dispute the idea that all the great ideas always are disruptive ones. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, if you're only incremental all the time and just inching along, you're gonna miss some huge opportunities. It takes experimentation, it takes chance-taking to find the sweet spot in the middle. And that's a better representation of what actually happens in industry, in art. Um, you know, we tell the story of uh, Beethoven writing this massive fugue for the end of a string quartet. And he's so nervous about it, he can't even bear to sit in the hall while they're premiering it. He goes to the bar across the street. He waits for the second violinist to come over. The second violinist kind of bashfully and ashamedly tells him that the audience didn't really get it. And then Beethoven gets trashed in the press for this movement. No one understands it. And the publisher begs him, please, could you cut it out of the string quartet and write something that people are going to like? And, you know, we often think of Beethoven as being just totally not caring about any of that. But he actually goes and he does that. And it's a gorgeous replacement movement. For 100 years, that's how that piece was played. And even 100 years after Beethoven's death, people still thought he was out of his mind when he mm -hmm. wrote that fugue. And now it's treated as one of his greatest works. But you can see him in his own time and place trying to find that sweet spot between novelty and familiarity and realizing with the great fugue he had actually gone too far in the direction of novelty for that particular moment. Thank goodness we still have that piece, and it is amazing. However, it wasn't right yet. And this is, by the way, what companies do all the time. Good innovative companies are constantly covering the spectrum. So they're doing some things that are way out and potentially disruptive, and they're also doing stuff that's a lot closer to community standards and everywhere in between. And so... Um, you know, they've got the things that uh, the, the customers want, and then they're trying the wacky things. Just as one example, you know, we looked at things like concept cars. Uh, you know, car companies make incremental changes to the cars they're selling, but they're also busy making these completely wacky, amazing things. Mercedes proposed a car that's grown entirely from seeds, and the fuel runs uh, within the body of the car, and it's all powered by solar roof on top of the car. It's this wonderful thing. It's not that it's intended that they're going to build that car next year. But by throwing way out there 
they get to figure out where the border of the possible actually lies. And we see that in all fields. In, in fashion, for example, people are making the clothing for next year, but they're also doing these haute couture shows with completely wacky things. Again, nobody's meant to wear this wacky stuff. It's just to figure out how far could we go. And then you, you pair back and you figure out where the sweet spot is in the middle. So I've been talking to Anthony Brandt and David Eagleman. We've been talking about The Runaway Species, How Human Creativity Remakes the World, which is out now from Canongate Books. David and Tony, thank you so much for coming in and sharing it with me. Thank you so much, Neil. You've been listening to Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by Neil Denny and was broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. You can find the Little Atoms podcast on iTunes and you can follow the show on Twitter at Little Atoms. If you'd like to donate a little money to support the show, you can do so at littleatoms.com. Thanks for listening. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.